Can you hear me? I'm not sure if you can. Can you? You can hear me. Yes. Hello, David. Yeah, there we go. We've got there. Yes, it's. Um, I'm doing it without Annette. You're doing. <laughs> yes. Well, it's very. I mean, the fact that we can talk to each other on either, either side of the world is remarkable at all, to be honest. But uh, that's. Uh, it's not. It's always got to have a few teething problems, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was kind of nerve-wracking because I've been sent so many mics and so many things for so many different things. If you looked around this room, it's I could start a I could start a sound studio which I can sell from. When when lockdown is over, you can flog it for a small fortune, presumably. Yeah, something. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Brian, thank you very much. It's lovely to uh, have you here. Well, I guess we'll probably just start then, shall we? Yeah. David Tennant does a podcast with. Brian Cox. So, Brian, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this. Now, I was reading your book about playing King Lear. Uh-huh. Uh, and in it, you talk about the opening night and you say you weren't nervous. You say, I don't get nerves very much nowadays, which feels to me, as someone who does, like a bit of a superpower for an actor. Is that still true? Yeah, I don't really get, I mean, maybe the flutter, but I really don't get nervous. I don't, uh, I once worked with Edward Petherbridge and uh, the man has no nerves whatsoever. Right. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a lesson, you know, he would be, you know, he'd be standing in the, he'd be in the dressing room and his cue to go on would still be, the, the actor would have started the speech to go on and lo and behold, Edward would still be there and then he'd walk on in time for his to be his speech, and he had no nerves whatsoever. I, I, I'm not bothered with nerves very much. Um, I don't know why. Were you ever, or is this something you've... No, I don't think I really was. Uh, you know, it was kind of, there was something about uh, the, the inevitability of that you're going to do it. So yeah. there's no point getting upset about it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. And... Uh, it's inevitable. And I, once you faced up to the inevitability of performing, nerves seem to fly away. Right. So we're talking today, you're in upstate New York currently. Is this where you, is this where you live now? Is that your home? Well, yes, it is now because of my enforced situation. But yeah. it's gorgeous here. Can I show yeah. you quickly? I'll, yeah. If you can see out the window. I don't know if you can see out the window. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it's a That's forest. Beautiful. You know, we're in the middle of a forest. It's a, it's a beautiful part of the world. And... It's been a privilege, actually, that because of this enforced thing, I've been able to watch the seasons. Because right. at the beginning of May, we had, had snow. Right. You know, so it was, right. So it, and it's gone from hail, snow, and then just watching the, and the trees were bare, and now it's the foliage. It's, it's, and the birds, the bird song is incredible. So it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It's a long way from Dundee, obviously. It's a hell of a long way from Dundee. Yeah. Yes. Do you feel more Scottish the further away you are from it? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I think the great thing about us, we 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 Celts, is that um, Robert Louis Stevenson's great quote was, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. The great affair is to move. Right. And I think that is something that is, in, you know, we're, we've done that. Our history is because we've been so kicked off places and lost our place and all that and been moved around and even right back to our Celtic beginnings you know when we finally find these port of calls either in Ireland or the north coast of 
France and Brittany, and and then finally into Scotland. You know, so it's it's kind of weird. So you 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 know that you're an inveterate traveler. You know you've been part of that kind of shifting diaspora that's been going on for centuries, really. Mm. And uh, so Scotland, but Scotland, you know, I I just I love it. I just love it. I love yeah. the country. I love going home. And I love it more as I got older. You know, when I was young, I used to you know, look at the tea and think, I can't wait to get across it. You right. know? Yeah. But it's now, it grew to be the opposite. And I'm very proud. I'm particularly proud of our first minister in Scotland. I, I think she is a lassie with, you know, who is really considerable. Yeah. Do you see yourself heading back there eventually? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think about it. You know, it's one of my fantasies. Right. A bit of a dream. My my sister's in a care home in Arbofeldy, and uh, my, my niece has got a, a wee place on the on the Tay there, and it's absolutely gorgeous. I'll tell you a funny story about my sister. So my sister, it's her 90th birthday. Right. Yeah, she's like, she was like my mum when I was a right, boy. Right, right. And uh, she's, it's my 90th, it's her 90th birthday. And uh, so the care home lay on a piper for her. And the piper comes and plays the pipes. And of course, I personally, I don't know about you, but I love the pipes. Sure. My sister can't stand the pipes. <laughs> <laughs> she hates the pipes. Right. And they're hard to escape when they start. <laughs> yeah. And I'm watching it, you know, I'm watching the... <laughs> Carry on. And I, I think, I wonder, because you can't see her because of social distancing and all that. And she's down at the end of the garden and I'm on FaceTime watching this, right. held up by my niece. And I kept saying, what's her expression? Like, what's her expression? She said, I can't see her expression. I said, we're dying with laughter. And finally afterwards, we get to the to her window, the window of her room where we can look into a room. We can't go in, but we look into a room. And I said, Betty, I said, how are the pipes? She said, well, I tell you, Bren, that's the best bit of acting I've ever done. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's interesting that in, uh, in Succession, which of course is this huge success you've been part of recently, that, that Logan Roy comes from Dundee. I presume that was written in after you got the part. No, it was written after we started playing. I see, right, okay. I did nine episodes born in Quebec. Oh, really? Yes, nine episodes I did born in Quebec, Canada. So I'm sort of got a Canadian rough American accent, which I'm doing. Yeah. And then finally, on the, the, the yeah, the ninth of Peter Friedman, who plays Frank, the person I'm always firing and rehiring and firing sure. and rehiring. And he said, I've just done an ADR session. He said, I said, really? He said, yes, they've changed your birthplace. <laughs> what do you mean they've changed my birthplace? He said, yeah, you're, you're, you're not born in Quebec anymore. I said, what? And we had this big celebration when he says Quebec, Canada, in the very first episode, which they needless to say dubbed. And I said, so where am I born? He said, oh, I can't remember. He said, and then he looked up his device. He said, oh, yeah, here we are. Someone called Dundee, Scotland. And I said, that's where I'm from. <laughs> I went to Jesse Armstrong and I said, Jesse, what is this? And he said, well... I thought it'd be a bit of a surprise. I said, it's a hell of a surprise in the say. to find out that's where you come from. Yeah. So he's now known as my evil twin, <laughs> Logan Roy. Yeah. But then in the second season, they even they have you going back to Dundee. I think you filmed in Dundee, right? That was incredibly moving, actually. You know, and Dundee was a bit of a, 
hole, you know, it was, yeah. it was not, they, they butchered, they butchered the town, but subsequently they've really, it's just gone through this extraordinary transformation Yeah, and with the, with the new uh, V&A. And um, so we were able to film in the V&A. So it was, it was quite funny going back there because there was the, these two realities. There was my reality. Well, yeah. Logan's reality as well. Is there anything of, because when Logan goes back, of course, he's, He's welcomed as this, you know, boy who's gone around the world and conquered it. And, you know, he's met with huge adulation. How much of that do you get when you go back to Dundee? Yes, I'm very popular, particularly down at the police station. No, I'm very very popular. Uh, It's it's people are very... Dundonians, they're great people. They're Mm. really great people. I mean, they've been... They've had everything thrown at them, you know, uh, Timex, NCR, and the Duke, the failure of you know, the ends of the Duke business. And, and you know, it's a sort of predominantly really kind of Highland, uh, you know, people from the Highlands, people from Ireland. All my lot came from Northern Ireland to work in the Duke mills. So, right. it, it, but it's, a, it's an amazing place. Yeah. Amazing place. Uh, this is a fondness you've developed, as you say, sort of later in life. When you were when you were young, you were yearning to escape, were you? Yeah, well, you know, I was, and I was, you know, I wanted to be. I mean, for me, it was as much about, you know, because I I started at Dundee Rep when I was fifteen, and I still had this an accent, this Dundonian accent, which you could cut with a knife, right? And I wanted to learn to speak, you know, and I thought I I really need to go to an English drama school, so I yeah. I, I, there was a lot of actors f- who I'd seen, you know, because I'd, while I was there, I could observe people come and go in, in, the, in the company. And, and uh, there were some, you know, these wonderful actors, not necessarily the best actors, but they seem to have some kind of, they, 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 they seem to have a, some approach to what they were doing. And that was the, that was the people from Lambda. So I, I, I decided on Lambda. Right. So what, but what initially took you to Dundee Rep? I mean, what was the... Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I clearly I always wanted to act from conscious memory. But what was that about? Because did you, presumably you didn't, did you know actors? There weren't actors hanging about in Dundee, were there? No, 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 I never knew anybody. I mean, I just, and I didn't even go to the theatre until literally six months before I worked there. Right. We start, there was a thing called the Rep Club, which a guy called Bill Dewar had started at my school. And he said, you should come to the rep club. So I went and I saw live actors for the first time on stage. And I saw, actually, impressively, Nickel Williamson. In oh, fact, right. Nickel Williamson was, when I went for my interview, Nickel Williamson was having a fight on the stair in the close. <laughs> he was having a fight and I couldn't get past him, which was, that was my first day at Dundee Rep. Right. And there was another actor at the, on, the, on the landing called Gone Granger. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know Gone. I know Gone. And Gon said to me, are you all right, darling? And I thought, hey, there's that fight downstairs and somebody just called me darling. (laughs) This is obviously the place I'm supposed to be. (laughs) Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. You didn't come from a family that were inclined towards acting or were particularly... No, I mean, not really. I mean, I, I came from a family of performers. I mean, okay. they were, you know... They would all perform in some shape or form, you know, and they were all my my late brother is you know, my, my late brother used to say he he always forgets, but really, you know, and the actor in the family. And the actor. Know him. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And he lived a kind of he lived a my brother had this he was very funny. He but I just played this character called Bob Servant. And yeah. Bob Servant is extremely like my brother. In fact, a lot of people thought it was based on my brother because right. he had a wee shop and he was very eccentric. And uh, But he lived this fantasy life, always on the run from the VAT men, you know, which was, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. He would talk about hitting the Mealy Pudden Trail. And it was all Western analogy. The Apaches yeah. are out to get me, Brian. we got to be careful. <laughs> so that's an actor if there was one. Yeah. So, the, so this performance was all in the house. You, you're all there. yeah, yeah. To a certain extent, when I, when I was very young, right. I kind of got, you know, after my father died and my mother had a series of nervous breakdowns, it sort of dissipated. But right, no, it was a, it was a sort of Hogmanay. You know, Hogmanay was great. You got up at, for the bells and you were right pajamas and you came down and you hid under the table. And my mother used to make steak pies at four o'clock in the morning. And right, and then my dad would and my sister May they would uh, they would we had the, a bunker a bunker with a, a recess window recess and there was a coal bunker in there and that was my first stage and I used to go on there. And my dad put me on there and I would do. Jolson impersonation. Yeah. Yes, and your dad, you were very young when your dad passed away. Was that, were you aware of what was happening? I mean, were you, were you old I, enough to... It was a very odd situation. It was a very odd time. You know, my, my mother had, clearly she she actually ran away from home at one point, which was the big beginning of what was, which I'm, you know, stuff. My dad made, he was a wee businessman. He was a wee shopkeeper and, uh, but very, very loved, you know, very respected. And he did a lot of, a lot of charity. In fact, my mother used to say, just remember, Brian, charity begins at home. You right. Know, my father was a little bit over charitable, but he was, that was, he was, you know, I still get letters from people now who said, your dad helped me way back. I mean, these are people in their eighties. Really? But my dad being the caring person that he was, but unfortunately he ended up in a very, very, bad fiscal situation, you know. Uh -huh. So, and then he developed, well, very quickly, he developed uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. And by the age of 51, he was gone. Right. My mom couldn't cope with any of it because the businesses and all that, which, which finally collapsed. And uh, she, had a, she had a series of nervous breakdowns. Right. And as an eight-year-old, how are you processing that? I mean, what's... Well... I think it goes back to your original question about nerves, you know. Yeah. You, 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 actually, you actually learn to, you, you learn that you, you either sink or swim in that situation because there's nobody, nobody, you know. Right. I mean, my sisters were there, but they were married. They had kids. My, my eldest and my youngest, my youngest of my eldest sisters was about, she went to Canada and uh, she, you know, and she had a life and my, my elder sisters made sure that she lived her life. So she went to Canada. So I was kind of between various pillars to various posts. And I just learned this um, survival mechanism, really, how right. to survive. 
Yeah. And uh, it stood me in very good stead. It sort of made me a little bit too, um, you know, I think it's kind of marked me a wee bit, you know. Sure. Well, it must do, inevitably, yeah. Just a wee bit. <laughs> but, I mean, Scots in the 1950s were not, I, not known for their demonstrative emotional life. This is the thing, you know, funny enough, I'm writing a, I'm writing a biography now, you know, and uh, no, they weren't. And was that kind of, you know, because my family, I know your family were um, Presbyterian, but my yeah. family was, was Catholic. There was this sense of you never talked about anything. You know, my mother's greatest praise was if I did something, she would say, oh, that's quite nice. And you go, is that <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that's it. Yeah, and you're going. Well, that's it because they they didn't know, and it's a kind of in the book I'm I'm writing. I describe it as conditioned ignorance. It's ignorance where people are really kept in the conditions of ignorance. Uh, the Catholic Church certainly doesn't help. I'm not so sure about what the Presbyterian ethic is, but uh, that was not a help. And therefore, people lived in this sort of where they didn't express themselves. I mean, even my birth, I mean, there's a sort of debate about who knew whether I was being born or not, because, or even if my mother was pregnant, you know. Really? And that. Right. My, my sister said that apparently she did know my mother was pregnant, but she was the youngest, and I don't know how she knew, but she did. She's, yeah, she said, I think... <laughs> She said this to me the other, I got this message for her. She said, I wanted to add something to you. She said, but you're writing this book. She said, you know, Ma used to go to the pictures all the time. All the time when you were, you know, when she was pregnant. In fact, I think that's what got into you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of weird. It's, it's weird in many ways, but it's something that people don't realize was very difficult. I mean, sure. that's why the 60s was such a wonderful, wonderful time because it was a time of great social and uh, cultural mobility. Yeah. And uh, that, you know, that was not present when I was a child. Yeah. I mean, do you remember, what, did you cry? Were you allowed to cry, encouraged to cry? I, I cried, you know, I cried a bit, you know, I, I was allowed to cry. I mean, my, my dad's funeral, I, in retrospect, was, um, and it's, it's, it's sort of had its profound effect on me. That, you know, you, you know, you just, you know, the 60s was such an amazing time of, of being welcomed. You know, that was the great right. thing about when I was a student, I was welcomed. The country took care of me, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was given a very good grant with a very good living. I mean, I had more money than I have had when I was working at the Rep. I mean, yeah, I worked sure. at the Rep for two years. Right. So you went to Lambda at 17, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And that must have felt like quite a culture shock, presumably. Big time. You know, I was a stinking, pimply, pudgy youth. You know, I right. really was. Right. <laughs> I, my physical charms were somewhat limited. <laughs> <laughs> So when you first head off to London, were you scared? Were you excited? Both? No, I was excited. I was working at the Palace uh, Theatre of Varieties in Dundee and uh, for a guy called Ronnie Coburn. And he still chased me. After 40 years, he chased me because he lent me the money to go to the London to go right. to get my train. And I never paid him back. And I forgot him. I just forgot it. Yeah. But, uh, no, I was very excited. I mean, I just... You know, and it was also because I had so many, and, and, and this is the thing, David, that I've always believed in, and I think it's partly the part of the, 
the, the curse of the actor, but it's also the sort of gift of the actor. It's this thing of having to reinvent yourself mm. on, on many occasions, that you have to just reinvent. And I think as a child, I had to do that constantly. So going to London was another reinvention and, a, uh, and an adventure. You know? And was it the swinging 60s London of legend? Very much so. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, going down, I mean, I mean, God almighty, walking down the King's Road, I mean, it was, that was unbelievable. Yeah. Especially for a wee boy if he'd done deep. Yeah, quite. So to be a student in those days, was it, I mean, you say you were a pimply youth, but did you get to enjoy a bit of sex and drugs and rock and roll? Did that happen? No, I was still very, I was still very, I was a Catholic boy and I wasn't a ah, practicing Catholic boy, but uh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't go. I, I, I tell you what, David, and this is, this is the truth, actually. I, I got married very young. My first marriage, you know, I got married when I was 21. Right. And, and, and the reason I got married is because I could, see, I could see the way the land lay in terms of the sort of promiscuity of the time. Not just the sexual promiscuity, but the kind of cultural promiscuity. And I, uh, I kind of thought, I need, I need, I need structure. Because I never had structure. I had no structure until I was 21. And I married this very I mean, sweet, lovely, very kind of upper middle class lassie with a, who had a very, very posh Scottish mother. And there's nobody more posh than posh Scots. Right, yeah. <laughs> they take the biscuits as far as sure. posh is concerned. Yeah. And she, her name was Lillian Munro Carr. You know, uh-huh. So she was one of those. Yes, you know, nice. And her father, actually, her, her father was this doctor who did um, incredible work on rickets in Glasgow. You know, he, he was, that was his specialty. He was a pediatrician, a professor. And uh, so I, I, I met Caroline and, and we got married quite quickly within a year, actually. But it was to do with the fact I know I needed structure. And she was also, she was very smart, my first wife, and still is. I mean, she's, I, she's lovely. I adore her, you know. But it, it, it just, I just needed that discipline of having something and that I could be working for because I didn't have family. My mom was, well, she was, she was okay, but she used to do, she worked as a chalet maid for butlins and things like that, you know, right. which was, well, she earned her money, but, uh, right. but there was no, I had no family anymore, you know, apart from my sisters. I mean, I, my, my eldest sister was always the one. I always say my eldest sister never, she didn't directly look after me, but what she did, which was probably more important, is she looked out for me. Okay. She made sure that things were okay. Okay. So that's why, you know, I, I, the, the drugs and rock and roll were, you know, I mean, of course, the music was fantastic. I loved all that. But the drugs, I was a wee bit, Wary of. I mean, I didn't start taking marijuana till I was fifty. Right. That was the first time I took it, and I haven't stopped. <laughs> right. So why did it take you so long? Because you know, I I I thought it's like it's like it's like motorcycle riding. It's sort of wasted on the young. <laughs> Very good. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, people with motorbikes you get motorbikes and then they die. You know, whereas yeah. you know, I, I I came to motorcycle riding when I was quite old. And the same with um, the same with drugs. I just I was very ambitious, 
I didn't want anything to get in the way, and I was very suspicious. But it was when I got to 50, and I know I need, I thought, God, I need a rest. I need a break. I need right. something to wind, turn me off at the end of the day. And, of course, perfect. Yeah, right. And it's something that I still indulge in. Right. See, it's part of uh, – I now have medical marijuana because I'm of such an age I can do that here. Very nice. Right, good. The Pimply Youth, uh, how did drama school suit the Pimply Youth? from Dundee. Did you feel liberated by it or it- I was liberated by it. Right. Because I had a library, you know, and I used the library to Right. You know, I started reading and all kinds had of Had you not done that at school particularly? No, my right. school my school was a disaster. I mean right, I really right, was. Right. I mean I was a I was a I was just a chancellor at school, you know? right. <laughs> just go, getting by with this. But I had these great men, these two teachers, George Hackett and Bill Dewar, who again looked out for me. They uh-huh. really did. They could see me, and they th- they knew I didn't fit in, you know. But, right. but I, I wasn't a dummy. I mean, I was reasonably smart. My grades were all right, but I wasn't interested. It was just not. There was nothing there that was interesting to me. I mean, I I, do, I wasn't going to go to trade school. I mean, my only alternative was. If I didn't get into the theatre, and I was lucky that I did, it was 15, and it happened that Bill Dewar knew this kid called Frank McGrath. He'd been working at the rep, and he was leaving, so his job was available. And I went along for this interview, and bull, I mean, out of the bullshit, I bullshitted my way through it, you know, because the, the, the guy, the director of the theatre said, so uh, and, and are you interested in music? I didn't know anything about music then, classical music. And I, and I just had our teacher, Brad Cato, our music teacher, just played the trumpet march from Maida. So I just <laughs> said, well, I like Verdi. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I said, he said, Verdi? He said, yeah, but, but really, Aida. <laughs> Particularly right. the trumpet man. It's just, it's all pretend. You Do you know? think they knew you were hustling them? Well, I mean, I think they knew, but they sort of just thought the audacity of the boy. You know, we yeah. got to, we got to, we got to allow him that, get him yeah. allow him that latitude. Yeah. Well, no, they were great, and they were very kind to me at the rep, and and equally so when I was a drama student. I had some great teachers. And did you excel at drama school? I mean, where you? Were you a bit of a star in that? I did well. I mean, I did a couple of plays. I got an agent, a um, wonderful agent called Larry Delzell, uh, oh, Larry yeah. DL, as we would call yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. And he was my first agent, and he was great. And um, and I did my first my first telly, I did, uh, which was a thing. In, and I played a Glaswegian, and I had, I had to learn how to do a Glasgow accent. I right. <laughs> I did a thing called Night in Tarnished Armour with um, uh, Paul Young. Oh, Yes. My first telly job was with Paul Young. Uh, really? Yeah. And uh, it was written by Alan Sharp, you know, oh, yeah. who went on to write Rob Roy and uh, right. who was married to Beryl Bainbridge. And uh, yeah, no, it was that. So that was the first time I worked. And then, yeah. then, I, then I got, and then I met the wonderful, truly wonderful Tom Fleming, who was a great oh, man. Right. Really yes. great man. Yeah. And then he uh, took me to the Lyceum. Right. And did you did you have a clear sense of what type of actor you wanted to be, or were you just looking for a job? Yes, I did. I mean, I, I I did have a sense of what I you know, I never understood the differentiation between character and leading man. I just thought it was right. like bullshit. Right. I yeah. was in the juvenile character section, and I was perfectly happy with that because I just thought, well, everybody's a character, surely. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what you you know what you're playing. It's a character. It's not, you know, what's the leading man? What does that mean? It was a kind of misnomer to me, the notion of leading man. So I never pursued that idea. So did you have that kind of list of roles you wanted to tick off? Did you have that kind of ambition? What happened to me was so extraordinarily lucky. I met this guy who came up, they did a production of Galileo, and Tom Fleming played Galileo. Uh And I was asked to, I I played Andrea Sarti, and the director was a man called Peter Jews, and he liked me and he liked my work. And he was going to run Birmingham Rep, and he said, "Uh, would you like to come to Birmingham? And I said, why? That sounds good. He said, what do you want to play? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, what do you want to play? And I said, well, uh, Hamlet. Right. <laughs> and he said, I? He said, well, so I said, well, you know, uh, maybe, um, maybe, uh, maybe Pierre Gint. He said, I? He said, um, I said, maybe Iago. I, Iago. And uh, anything else? I said, well, maybe, uh, who else? Um, Oh, I don't know, um, yeah, that's, that's good for starters. He said, fine. So I ended up, didn't play Hamlet, but I did play Iago and I did play Pierre Gint and I also played Bolingbroke and I played Orlando. Wow, brilliant. And this was all before my 22nd birthday. That's amazing. That's amazing. Whenever I've seen you playing Shakespeare, you have a, you have a knack for making it sound spontaneous and conversational. And I wonder if that's, is that something you particularly were aware of and striving to do, or is that just how it comes to you? It, it, it developed. You know, you start right. with all the, the you start with all the kind of the end stopping and the and the structure and the verse, and uh, the verse, of course, is. I mean, I I love Shakespeare. I just adore Shakespeare. You know, I mean, uh, you can't get round them as a writer. You just simply can't. But the thing about it was that, you know, the history of it, I mean, Gilgood, of course, I was very lucky. I worked with Gilgood. Right. And Gilgood, you know, he could go into flights of fancy, but then he could speak incredibly simply Shakespeare. He could, if you listen to Ages of Man, what is it called? The Ages of Man, I think it's called. It's an old recording that he did years and years ago. And yes. he just, when he's resting into the text, he's astonishing. But then he gets off these flights of fantasy. Down, down, I come like glistering Theaton, wanting the manager of unruly jade. Down court, down king, for night owls shriek, where mountain larks should sing. You know, so you've, you've got that. Yeah. And, but then you can say, well, I know what that's, why that's there, but let's just think about it in a kind of, way that people can understand, you know? Yes, yes. And so I, 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 I kind of was blessed with it. And I, I was blessed with my instrument, you know, my voice, which has helped me a lot over sure. the years. So there was, you were consciously, because obviously there's that British, English, probably British tradition of, of presenting classical work in a, in a rather theatrical demonstrative, like like the way you described uh, Gilgood. Were you, were you consciously going, no, I don't want to do that? I, it wasn't, you know, there was always, there was the, and of course it was the period of liberation of, of John Barton and Peter Hall doing the Age of Kings with uh, with people like Ian Holm and David Warner. So there was that that was very prevalent at the time. But I was very, un, I, I wasn't institutional person. I was not really for the company as such. And particularly in the, 
sort of late 70s when the Alan Howard stuff it happened at Stratford. I just, I couldn't get with it. And it was only, I was 40, you know, when I was finally, and I had to, I was going through a divorce and I needed a regular job. So I went to the, I went to the Barbican to do a couple of plays at the Barbican. And then I ended up going to Stratford and it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Right. I didn't expect to love Stratford at all, but I loved, I loved the, I loved the closeness of it. I loved the fact it was, you know, you were out, you were, you were out away from home. You were there in a very, and I was divorced at the time, so I was on my own. So it was a very, very concentrated period for me. Yeah. And that was uh, when you went and did Titus Andronicus up there, which, which you had a massive success with. What, what was it about that part that suited you so well, do you think? Well, again, it goes back to two things that happened, actually. I, I did a Macbeth in India. Uh, it was an India tour of it. And I, I remembered that this, this lassie, who was my dresser, she was a Katak dancer. And she came to me one day and she said, you know, she was my dresser. And she said, she asked if she could say something, and and I said, "Yeah, sure." Was it? She said, "You know, I, I think, Mister Cox, that you, you, I really get the feeling that you want to burst out, you want to explode, and you can't." And I said, "Mom, I can, I can understand that." She said, "Yeah." She said, "And I think it's to do with your movement." She said, "You should move. You should move." And I went, "Really?" She said, "Oh yes." She said, "You're very." You, 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 you present the text wonderfully, but you should move. You should allow your body to move. And I went, okay. So I was doing the, the two famous speeches, you know, the, you know, the ones we can't quote, <laughs> his two speeches. And she used to stand in the wings and, I, and watch me and I would try stuff. And then I'd come out and I'd say, what do you think? Further, she'd say, further, go further. And she was 16. Right. And I went, Okay, and eventually I was crawling all over the stage for the ravishing stride stuff. Wow. And it was so liberating, and the rest of the cast was like, what's going on? Of course, we didn't have any director or anything because there was nobody on tour with us. And then the other thing, the other influence is all those Scottish actors, is McRae right. And, right. And, and, and Fulton, who had this exactitude about them, but this kind of precise physicality. I mean, you've got it too, David. You do it as well, and you do it excellently. And it's that, that and it's part of our heritage. Right. That, that I thought, oh, wow, yes, yes. And I can do that. And Titus, you see, Titus is such a wonderful play because it's this, it's described as a tragedy, and but it's an early play of Shakespeare's. He wrote it around the same time as Richard III. And it's a play full of ideas. It's got Othello in there. It's got Lear in there. It's got Hamlet in there. Fane Madness. It's got all of it there. But what he does, it, and it, he deals with tragedy in such an extreme that it becomes between tragedy and it has a huge comic thing, which is ludicrous. Life is ludicrous. And when you, you know, when you dedicate yourself to something like the state of Rome as, as Titus has, and it's got more and more corrupt and he can't see it because he's so locked into his, you know, his yeah. old sense belief. Uh, and then it snaps and it suddenly goes into this kind of madness. And that was the great thing about Titus, that just the sheer, and 
I owe that to John McRae. I owe that to Fulton, Calamil, just those actors I worked with like 20 years before. Right. And just having, having that extraordinary physicality about them. But I'm interested as well that it's not every leading man who would listen to a 16-year-old who knocks his dressing room door and says, can I, can I give you a couple of notes? I mean, is, that, is that something you would always do or was there something particularly about her that... that well, she had a kind of presence about it. She was very, very modest. I mean, she, right. she, never, she never said anything really until this time. And why did you think she was right? Why did you think? Because I knew it. I mean, right. I knew, right. and also I'd, I'd reached a point in my career, you know, where I'd, I'd had relative success, but I hadn't achieved what I felt I should have achieved. I mean, I wasn't old. I mean, God, I was, what was I? Uh, it was, I was probably about 34, 35, right. about then. But I, you know, I'd been working for some time, you know, and I just felt that I was right for some kind of Damascian, Damascus moment. Yeah. When something comes to me that kind of liberates me. And, and this we lastly did it. Right. This must have been, would that have been around the same time you became a parent as well? And do you think that? It was a little later. Okay. It was probably, I was a little later. I mean, I was a very young parent. And I was right. a very young and probably pretty stupid parent. Right. <laughs> I've not been very good at parenting. I'm, it's, not, it's not something I excel in because I didn't have any myself, so it's very hard. So do you think that your, the, the experience you had, is, uh, your difficult childhood, that moulds how you are as a parent, do you think? Yeah, it does a wee bit, you know, because you're, I mean, my father was mythic. Right. And it's hard to be mythic as uh, a father, sure. you know, because yeah. you're going... Yeah. How do I do that? How do I achieve that mythic status? Yeah. <laughs> do you think having do you think having a difficult childhood makes you want to cosset your children to protect them from something similar or to or to make sure they're not too protected so they understand that my my thing is not to protect them. Right. I, I, I differ from my wife in that. I mean I, I just think having lived through failure as a child, big time, and scholastic failure. I really, I get driven by the fact that I, I should be responsible and I should set down boundaries and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm, right. hopeless. <laughs> I'm useless and all that. But I've, but, and, and I also feel that children should be allowed to fail. Right. You know, I, I, you only really learn from failing. And of course, that's the story of my career. It was through my failures that I learned. Right. The things that I didn't quite achieve that I learned. How do I how do I get over that hump? How yeah. do I make how do I negotiate the next bit of that? You know. Yeah, yeah. You've worked on both sides of the Atlantic uh, for the last well, I mean, really since was it Rat in the Skull that first took you to America, and since then you've been pretty bi-coastal with uh, with your work. It's, you've had a very international career, and then uh, and it's been extraordinarily varied. You've been X-Men and you've been in the Bourne movies and yet you're always coming back to theatre. You've been a voice of a monster in at least two different shows that I've been in <laughs> at different times. Um, is there a method to how you elect what comes next? Is, are you are you trying to carve a sort of make sense of all that or are you just, do you just have difficulty saying no? You know, there, there we are. There I am talking about alignment, you know, and, uh, and saying let's be aligned. But actually the truth of the matter is the actor should be non-aligned, you know, because right. we have to be open to everything. Sure. We have to be open to the whole kit and caboodle. And, and it's that openness which can drive you daft. But, but at the same time, it's exciting. 
you know, funny enough, playing that, is it called the Drood that I did? The Ood, the Ood. The Ood, yeah. I get people say, can you say, I wasn't even there. No. And the weird thing about that was, I thought, I went along to the studio yeah. to do what I thought was a pitch for Doctor Who. I was oh. I was doing an ad. Oh, I see. And I got these lines, and they started giving me these lines. I said, and I was reading them, I'm like, okay, fine. And I said, this is a funny ad. And the director, <laughs> and he said, uh, yeah, th- th- this is not an ad. This is the Ood. And I said, what? He said, you're, you're playing. I said, oh, I said, well, I don't think that's what I It's too late. It's not an ad, you're the Ood. No, I'm a nude. Right. <laughs> Very significant it was too. You heralded my demise. And is there a different, is there a different Brian Cox who turns up on the set of the X-Men or the set of Bob Servant or a, a show on Broadway? Do you approach things differently or do you? No, I think I just maintain. I mean, I I always maintain an openness. You know, I, I I try not to judge. I used to judge a lot when I was young, and I try not to do that anymore. I try just to go into a situation with a kind of openness and just say, yeah, you know. And also, I'm still up for the adventure. You know, that's right. what I love about our job. Yeah, yeah. We're so blessed in what we do. You know, where nobody has. You know, I just think, and I love actors. I just think actors are the best people. I'm very biased. You know, they can be a pain in the ass, but they can be the opposite. You know, they can be absolutely gorgeous and open and 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 childlike. That's what I love about actors is that their relationship to the child. They haven't got. They haven't forgotten themselves as bairns. You know, yeah. and I love that. I love that thing. I always say that to when I'm at my active students. I always say, listen. Please, please, always try and carry a picture of yourself as a wee boy or a wee girl. Right. And just, just to remind you of that openness, that wonder, that kind of starey thing that you had when you were wee, that you didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah. And I said, that's the thing that you've got to cherish because you right. still don't know what the hell's going on. Right. Yeah. Do you do that yourself? Do you carry a photo around? Yeah, right. I have to. You know, I, I had to learn when I was a kid you know, I remember I was put in a situation where I was made to fight this boy who was clearly what we would call nowadays severely autistic. And he was a sweet, lovely kid. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's nothing more cruel than the playground. The playground, the child's play, the school playground is, is the yeah. most vicious place on God's earth, yeah, you know, sure. when you're pushed into situations. So I was pushed into this situation where I was having a, you know, fight this kid, and I didn't want to. Fight. And I'm, 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 I hate violence. I loathe it. So the only way I could get out of it was to attack myself. <laughs> so I started beating myself up and throwing myself on the ground. And wow. <laughs> and then I was left alone after that. I was right. in compromising positions. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. So you've had this extraordinary career you've award-winning barnstorming and then in your 70s you land this part of logan roy in succession which is just goes crazy i mean it's a hugely rightly so it's a huge huge success globally um celebrated by critics and audiences alike has it brought you a new type of celebrity that you hadn't had up to now. Can't go on the tube anywhere. Right, right. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it has brought, I mean, it, it has. It's, um, I'm so grateful for it. And, you know, it, it goes back to when I was a kid. I, I, I knew, I mean, I could see, you know, what, you know, I've been in, next year I'll be in the business for 60 years. So I've seen actors come in and fall by the wayside and talented people not being able to get purchase, you know, and they have a moment of glory and then it's gone. And I, I always, always was determined that I would be in it for the long run. Right. I mean, it, it's happening to women now, but of course it didn't happen to women for a long time. But the parts are just getting more and more interesting as you mm -hmm. get older because you have, you have all the bias that you've gathered and you have all the opposite of that you've gathered as well. And you have, a, you have an, able, an ability to go to a, some kind of still center where you kind of really observe the human dilemma in a really non-judgmental way, you know, which is what we're supposed to do as, yeah. as, as players. So I, I, I feel blessed that I've got this far. And I feel, you know, that when I got, once they asked me to do Succession and I had the conversation with Adam McKay and Jesse Armstrong, I just knew this was, this was it. This was the winner. This was perfect. Did you read a script? No, no, it was just the way they pitched it. You know, because, you know, your scripts are, <laughs> scripts are very secret. And uh, I see, I see. You don't see scripts too often. Right, okay. Except they know, I mean, actually, this is the weirdest thing because Jesse, just as COVID was closing in and we, the lockdown was happening, I had a meeting with Jesse and he told me all about season three. Right. And I said, you're not supposed to tell me about this. I'm not supposed, I'm, I'm an ignorant actor. Please just let me still be ignorant. And I'm going, oh, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, a little bit, give me a little bit. No, and it's very exciting and hopefully we'll get it made. But um no, it's 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 been really good. I mean, I can't complain. The, uh, one of the great triumphs of it, I think, is the exceptional casting uh, 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 across the board, and uh, and yourself at the top of that pile. Did you know who Logan needed to be straight away? Well, I did. You know, I, I mean, the thing about it is, I, you know, I played Hannibal Lecter. Mm. I was, I, I think, I was the first person to play it. Yes, and uh, you know, and then. I, you know, Tony came in and got the Oscar and all that, and uh, fine. I, I, I didn't mind him getting the Oscar. Just it's the money you got. I was really working on. <laughs> but the interesting thing was what I realized about Hannibal was he was mysterious. You didn't know where he was really. You knew that he was vile. You knew he was, but you didn't. There was something kind of that made you want to watch him, want to follow him because you you were. You were hooked in by his mystery. Yeah. And I think that's so important, uh, you know, when you get a role where you can do that, that you can actually exercise that mystery, that the audience are allowed to do more of the work than you, you know, you don't need to give all, you don't need to reveal all. And uh, I felt that about, I felt that about Logan because I just thought Logan was mysterious because he's, you know, he comes from, unlike the Murdochs or the Trumps, it's not inherited wealth. He's a self-made man. And therefore he's also, and he's grown to be much more of a nihilist. You know, he's quite nihilistic in his thinking. And you'll never know because he will never reveal what the background was. And we had the scene in Dundee where he kind of avoids everything, the sister and all mm. that. So there's a story there, but we don't want to dwell on it too much. We just want to leave it as a, beautiful part of the 
coloring the palette, you know? Mm. So I, and I think that's important. And I, that's what I, you know, and that's the thing that I love about the character because you, you don't know always where he's coming from. I mean, right. ostensibly, you know that he is avaricious. You know that he's, he believes in money, you know, all of that. But it's, it's a means to a kind of end that we don't know about. Right. Do you feel that you know about it? I know about it. Okay, right. <laughs> but I'm not telling you. No, sure. <laughs> oh, go on. Just me and our listeners here. Um, so do you do you have any desire to slow down? No. No. No, I think slow down is the way to dusty death. I think okay. you go to your drop. Right. And I don't, I don't want to slow down. I think we just go on, you know, as long as we are not, kind of avaricious about it, you know, that we actually take in the world along the way, you know, that, uh, I, 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 but I don't see myself slowing down. I mean, I will slow down because the work will become less and less. My age may discriminate against me, but uh, no, I don't. I feel, I feel, I, I feel good. Well, thank you very much for taking this time today. It's been brilliant. Oh, it's, it's, it's so nice to talk to you, David. Oh, I, never, I like I see you at a distance, and I never get a chance to say how fantastic you've done. And oh, as a well. fellow Scot, I'm hell of a proud of you. Well, that's very kind. Well, I'm, you know, you've all, I've always been a big fan, so it's very nice to be able to do this. Okay. David. And thank you for being part of this. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner. Next time. So I had to go out to the pool and, you know, scream at finding my mom dead in the pool. And I felt like that just really sort of set the tone for (laughs) the rest of my career. (laughs) 